This is the Fail Fast Podcast. Stories of entrepreneurs who looked at failure in the eyes and didn't give up. With your host, Quinn Amorum. Today's Fail Fast Podcast is sponsored by Prolific Zone. If you have a physical product and you want to sell it on Amazon, or if you already sell on Amazon, but you want a professional team to manage your Amazon account and your sales for you, then you have to contact prolificzone.com or by email at hi at prolificzone.com. Now let's get into this episode. Welcome everyone to the show. Today we have an amazing story. We have a guest, Warwick Fairfax. is a Harvard Business School graduate and Fairfax was once on the epicenter of one of the biggest, most spectacular business failures in the history of his home nation, Australia. Warwick, how's it going? Very good. Thanks, Quinn. Oh, it is a huge pleasure to have you on the show. I, I want to know all about the present and everything, but first, let's start with that major failure. That was one of the biggest, it, it was all over the news in a few years ago in Australia. It was one of the biggest business failures at, until that time, correct? That's correct. Let's hear the story. Tell us all about it. You have my time in my ears. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Quinn. Well, I grew up in a 150-year-old family media business. It was started by my great-great-grandfather uh, back in uh, early 1840s when he came out from England. Um, it grew to be a very large business, including newspapers, magazines, TV, radio, Newsprint mills that had the equivalent of uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal of Australia. So, you know, the major uh, influential publications. Uh, if you're a uh, politician looking for office, you obviously wanted to uh, at least try and get good coverage in the Fairfax papers and know, uh, you know, my father and folks before him. So, uh, as I was growing up, there was a lot of um, Pressure spoken and unpressured to go into the family business. It was sort of, you know, people here in America that, like in the military, talk about uh, duty on a country. It was that sense. It's you know, it's kind of my duty to go in the family business. And how could you not think of doing that? Uh, the sense of loyalty and duty was definitely a huge part of my family and my way of thinking. Um, and ha- obviously, a lot of pressure uh, on me to. Uh, one day be uh, a leading figure in the company, maybe chief executive, but certainly a leading figure. That was my parents' hope. And so um, somebody, um, somebody's wired to be a very loyal and uh, beautiful person, so I worked hard at school, did my undergraduate degree at Oxford in England, like uh, my dad and some other relatives, worked in banking on Wall Street in the U.S., got my grad degree at Harvard Business School, None of those things were so much because I wanted to do them. It's that's what I needed to do to fill a role and to do my duty, to be loyal to my family kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I, as I was finishing at Harvard Business School in 1987, and I was 26 at the time, my dad, who was in his 80s at the time, uh, died in early 87, and there was some... Uh, turmoil within the family, as there often is in family businesses, some different factions and um, some friction. Uh, the stock market believed uh, that the company was in play. 50% of the company was publicly held. 
stock price started rocketing up. So that obviously indicates the market felt like the company was vulnerable to take over. Uh, I didn't want the company to be taken over. And I guess my parents and therefore I had some maybe different vision of um, management and how the company should be run. Uh, so uh, in August 87, I launched a $2.25 billion takeover. That's Australian dollars, but even US dollars, it's it's a lot of money. It's probably north of 1.7 billion at the time, which you know is what that is in today's money. Yeah, uh, from the 80s back now. So it was a big deal on all, obviously front covers of all the papers. Um, so Warwick, this was yeah, this 1.6 US billion or 1.7. This yeah. was in the 80s, correct? Yeah, exactly. Oh. 87. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly right. So um, it was a big deal uh, at the time. And uh, so things really went wrong from the start. Other family members sold out uh, in October 87. There was a big stock market crash that hurt our asset sale program. So we ended up from day one with too much debt. Yes, I brought in new management that increased operating profits by 80%, but it kind of didn't matter because after interest at a bottom line level, you know, we were just hemorrhaging a huge amount. And despite all our efforts refinancing after uh, three years, uh, Australia got in a big recession in late 1990 and the company, we had to file for bankruptcy. So my vision had to, was to preserve family control, have the company be run along the ideals of the founder, my great-great-grandfather. And what I ended up doing was accomplishing exactly the reverse. The company fell out of family control. I mean, it's still going, but it's not in family control anymore. Uh, so it was, I suppose, a catastrophic uh, failure, epic failure that it's uh, not easy to bounce back from. So that's that's kind of the short story of, uh, of uh, yeah, my, my life in, uh, let's say, one-time media mogul or I don't know what. You know, it's kind of a, I don't see myself that way anymore. So it's sort of a strange story, really. Yeah, so do you still own part of the, the existing company now? No, I don't. Uh, all my shares, you know, bank took over. So, no, I don't have any relationship with it anymore. And I go back somewhat frequently to Australia because my family is still there and I actually have a daughter uh, working there. Um, and we're all, you know, relations are pretty good uh, these days. But, no, I don't have any uh, link anymore to Fairfax Media. So at the time, that that must have affected you emotionally as well, right? It's not just financially, emotionally, that was devastating? Absolutely. It's funny, and, you know, some of your listeners, many of your listeners may not be able to identify with, maybe some will, but money is not something that motivates me because I grew up with so much. You know, mm-hmm. money, privilege, status can belong to all of the, you know, best clubs, uh, politicians want to see you. We even had folks visiting from Hollywood would drop by and see my mother. You know, my dad was knighted, you know, Sawarik Fairfax. And my mother was Lady Mary Fairfax. And people would say, oh, you know, you've got to go see Lady Fairfax and, you know, she'll show you a wonderful party and et cetera. So, I mean, it, it was sort of a very different lifestyle. And, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with success, financial success. But it just never motivated me. So that, that wasn't so much the devastating part. But the devastating part was that I'd let down my family. I'd let down my parents. I'd let down my father, who I... I love very deeply and that sense of just letting my family down, letting the family legacy down. I mean, 
through much of the 1990s, it was it was devastating. Uh, the other thing that was really tough is there was a legacy of faith in my family. Certainly, the founder, and uh, when I was at Oxford, my sort of faith, uh, Christian faith, went to an Anglican church, became important. So I just felt like, oh well, maybe you know, this is kind of sounds stupid and naive, and I was in my twenties after all, but. You know, the, the founder was a person of faith. Maybe, you know, God wants me to uh, somehow resurrect the company or some really uh, harebrained notion. Mm-hmm. And so there was this sense that, you know, God had a plan and I'd um, let him down or something. So which were a person of faith. I felt like I let my family down. I let my faith down. And that was just, it, it was, it was devastating. Yeah. Work. Do you think that was you were being harder on yourself than anybody else, or did the family kind of agree with you at the time that <laughs> it was your fault? Oh, maybe both. Um, yeah. Certainly. Um, I mean, other members of the family. I mean, you know, financially they sold at the height of the market, so it's not like mm-hmm. financially they did poorly. And frankly, newspapers have done that well in the last twenty years because of digital advertising and. That's right. It's been a bit of a uh, challenge, but there was a sense of, you know, this was unnecessary. And you could make a case, you know, okay, the stock price went up. I didn't need to do what I did. Maybe I could have spoken to management and or family. Maybe there was another way. I mean, that's the problem is when you make mistakes, you never get to explore the what-if scenarios, which you can sort of what-if yourself to death. But what if this and what if that? You, you don't know. But... Um, yeah, I think there was an element, Quinn, of me being hard on myself in that there were frictions within the, within the family uh, going back, you know, decades. Uh, so, you know, there, that was certainly true. And I wasn't cut out to uh, be a Rupert Murdoch-style media mogul. I'm more of a reflective advisor. So in hindsight, it was just a terrible fit. I mean, I may be diligent, work hard and all that, but that's great. But I just didn't have the inherent wiring to do that, nor was it really my vision. Another sort of huge mistake. I mean, it's great to make your parents happy, yes. but you can't spend your whole life having your vision just be bound up with what your parents or those you love want. I mean, that's just a, a warped way of looking at family loyalty. I'm all about family, but that's warping it in a way that I don't think it's healthy. Absolutely. We see that uh, often uh, today and in the past as well. A lot of people are, people are living somebody else's life or the life that they thought somebody else wanted for them. And Exactly. And you can only live your life. It's not selfish to live your life. It's not selfish to want to make your dreams uh, happen. You can have a, a good family, uh, love those that uh, you cherish, and still pursue your dreams. It's not an either-or scenario. Yeah. How about, like, I, saw, I know this was 87, so in the 90s, close to the 90s, uh, there was probably a lot of, I don't know, uh, what we call today fake news and all that. And since mm-hmm. you owned what was the equivalent to the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal in Australia, there had to be a lot of competition that was happy that that happened. And did any news that you didn't want that, to come out, did anything like that come out? Was it dug out by the, all the other uh, media? You know, um, 
I mean, obviously the media coverage was not favorable. Um, one of the things that made it, I mean, it, it was typically, I mean, if you Google me, it's, it's, it's not particularly good. It's kind of like young, hot-headed kid could have, ha- could have had it all and blew it. Mm-hmm. And that may never change. You know, so you can't have your uh, self-worth bound up in Google. Otherwise, at least in my case, you'll be in trouble. And the other thing is what I did, this was personal to a lot of journalists, especially that work in the Fairfax media, because what I did from their perspective upset their lives and newspapers haven't done that well since. They would, they would maybe tend to think if, if the Fairfax family had maintained control, maybe life wouldn't have been so bad. I'm a bit skeptical of that given what's happened all over the world with newspapers. But there's this, I think, sense that um, what, when what you do affects somebody's life, personally, it's going to give them a perspective that's not necessarily favorable to you. Uh, now, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not maybe surprising, but no. I mean, when, even when my name comes up today, which doesn't happen all that often, but when it does, at least in Australia, it's, it's rarely is it in a good light, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and that again may never change. You know, so having your sense of worth, self worth bound up in the media, well, even if it's whether it's right or wrong, it's a different question. Uh, that's not healthy. Yeah, I I could see it happening. Although, you know, the the '90s are long gone. Everybody right. grows, changes. We Absolutely. all learn with our failures. It's one of the reasons I have this podcast is so some people can hear it and learn with other people's mistakes. Uh, I guess it's about time to, to let go. And how did you let go? Because you you were probably harder on yourself as well. And, and that's that's probably one of the hardest things is when we are our biggest, sometimes our biggest enemy. How did you learn to let go and just finally start living again, living your own life? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, it wasn't easy the decades of the 90s. Yeah, I, I tended to beat myself up and I'm kind of wide that way. I'm very hard on myself. Uh, but it was a slow process. Um, I mean, a number of things. Certainly my faith was sort of a uh, cornerstone of who I am and, and the way back. I began to think, at least theologically, if God wanted this to happen, it kind of would have happened. I mean, a lot of faith perspectives, you have this, some would say, fatalistic view of life, but just the sense of if there is some force and control you know, uh, mm-hmm. you can't just um, think of it that way. And the other is, you know, again, from my faith perspective, God doesn't need all of my achievements and, and what I did. I think I believe that we're all children of God and he loves us for who we are, not because of what we do per se, uh, our characters. And I began to think, well, what's really important in life? It's not so much uh, what I could have done in Fairfax Media. It's, you know, I think, you know, God or whatever, have you look at it, looks at it differently. Other things that helped me uh, hugely is uh, my wife and my family. We married in 89, so I had a young family in the 90s. And you come back to young kids and they know nothing, knew nothing about Fairfax media. I was just daddy. I mean, they didn't care. Yeah. You know, you obviously, you know how it is. And you've got young kids. And, um, and even to this day, they're in their 20s now, they know the whole story. But they really ask about it because that's not who they know. It's just not relevant to them. You know, it's it's just 
they almost never say, so tell me about, you know, growing up in the family and media business. Tell me about the takeover. I, I mean, I can't, they've never really asked. It's just not relevant to their lives, even though, you know, they know a lot about it. So, yeah, certainly my wife and my kids helped. And then I guess another thing that really helped me come back in terms of reclaiming my self-worth, if you will, was finding things that I could do. You know, maybe is there something I can do and not screw it up, you know? I sort of ended with that mindset. And so I worked for a local aviation company and did finance and business analysis. And I remember thinking, gosh, I've got to be the lowest paid Harvard Business School graduate doing this thing, which yeah, I don't care about money, but I do, self-esteem is like important. <laughs> so yes. We're all human. It's a mark, I suppose. Uh, and then I got into executive coaching. Uh, I love asking questions. I'm a curious person. And then as I was doing that, I came to realize in my questions, I had a leadership perspective and a leadership voice. Um, and then I got on a couple nonprofit boards, my kids' school and the uh, non-denominational church I belong to on the board there. And there I felt like I can contribute as a reflective advisor. This is something that I'm uh, good at and probably a key turning point for me which led me to what i do now with crucible leadership is about 10 years ago in 2008 the pastor of my church was giving a message and you know wanted me to give a few uh, minutes thoughts uh to illustrate it was talking about david and how he was you know running away from saul who was trying to kill him just because he was a good commander and he was jealous and you know the way it works you do really good and then your boss doesn't like it you know <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and wants to take credit. Hopefully not kill you, but, you know, that's what Saul wanted to do here with David. Um, so anyway, you know, righteous man, falsely persecuted. So, so, well, I don't really think of myself as a righteous man, falsely persecuted. I've got a lot of it on myself, but fine. I'll give it a five-minute illustration. And somehow what I said resonated with those who heard it, the congregation, and realized most people in the U.S. know not a whole lot about Australia. You know, what is it, like kangaroos, koalas? you know, Harbour Bridge. They'd never heard of Fairfax Media. There's a cross-section of America, not particularly, you know, there weren't too many you know, wealthy media moguls in the audience. But somehow when you talk honestly and vulnerably about failure and what you've learned and how you've maybe come back in terms of self-esteem and self-worth, that resonated. And for months afterwards, people would come up with me, to me and say, Warwick, that really helped me. So I thought, okay, if I can use my story of, failure and then as somebody said really the the story is more how you came back from it if that can help people mm -hmm. that motivated me to you know write a book which i'm in the process of getting published and uh, uh crucible leadership and um so i think one of the lessons for me is well many lessons but uh one is as you find who you're wired to be and something you're passionate about as you're able to give back and help others that's very healing it's, it's a part of being able to move on is finding something where you feel like you can contribute and, and help people. Um, you know, and that, you know, to me, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, success is, is fine. I'm, uh, you know, nothing against success. And, uh, you know, we, my daughter's in Australia. So we, we met her in Hawaii for Christmas and that was a fabulous time. So I'm not against success or, enjoying things of life as you're able to i'm all for that but having something where you feel like you're contributing and having meaning and significance that mm -hmm. to me that was 
healing, family, faith, having something I felt like I could do and contribute. All of those things were key ingredients of, of my healing and reclaiming my self-worth. And Warwick, can you tell us what is a crucible experience? Because a lot of people may not know what yeah. crucible is. Well, um, a crucible literally is when you have uh, like a cauldron and you have some metals and you, you heat it to a very high temperature and it kind of melts together. And I think more broadly, a crucible, at least in my world, can be this traumatic, transformative experience in which your life is not the same afterwards. It's really self-defining. Um, it could be, in my case, a business failure, you know, losing a business. It could be getting fired. It could be a health challenge, uh, you know, divorce. I mean, it, there's many different varieties. But the commonality is it's traumatic. And you felt like there was my life before the event and my life after. That was my crucible moment. And so to me, you know, life is not easy. There aren't too many people that haven't suffered failure or some trauma of some description because life is just like that. Life isn't like, I mean, we all go to Disney World and wish, wish life was like that. everything's perfect. The flowers are in bloom. You know, when you go home at night, they change the flowers out and put new ones. I mean, it's unbelievable. Sweep the streets. I mean, it's, I love Disney World, but that's just is not reality, which is why we like it, you know? So, um, you know, when you go through that you, traumatic experience, you really have a choice. You can either wallow in that and say, this sucked, this was awful, this was so unfair. I mean, I could have gone down a track of, look, hey, none of it's my fault, and there'd been infighting in the family for decades, and, you know, I used advisors at the time that, you know, either stabbed me in the back or gave me terrible advice. I could give you a whole list of reasons why none of it was my fault, okay? I could, I could write that case. Yeah. which is not an accurate case. There are elements of veracity in that, but it's certainly not true in the whole sense. You can go down that sense of, hey, you know, and sometimes things aren't your fault, like with abuse. There are times in which it really is not, is not, your, not your fault at all. But either way, you've got to say, you know, this sucks, this is awful, it was my fault, not my fault. But what am I going to do now? Am I going to just curl up in bed and just give up on life? I mean, that's a choice. And it may be a very understandable choice. But the other alternative is to say, okay, how can I use this to help others to sounds a bit um, idealistic, but you know, how can I make the world a better place? How can I help others? How can I make a contribution? And that choice, not only does it help people, but it also leads to healing too. So it's you go through a crucible moment and you're faced with a choice. Am I going to give up on life? Or are we going to say, this was awful? But you know what? We're going to move on and we're going to bounce back. And, um, you know, that's yeah. really the choice you have. Is that one of the reasons why you created the Crucible uh, leadership? Was it because you want to be able to help others and at the same time heal? Yes. I mean, that's a very discerning comment. Um, when you help others, it is healing of itself. And I would say, I mean, I don't know that you ever completely get over a crucible experience uh, like mine or, or like others that people have gone through. But I'd say, largely speaking, you know, I'm doing terrific. I have a wonderful wife, wonderful kids. Life is very good. Um, you know, I kind of have what I need. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm just blessed that way. I love what I do. 
But yeah, it's it's a sense of um, not everybody's willing to talk about failure. You yes. know, people tend to. I mean, how many CEOs write books? You know, uh, I failed. Learn from me. It's rare. It's like I'm the CEO of X Fortune 500 corporation. Learn from my wisdom. Learn from my success. Absolutely. And that's not wrong. But people don't want to write. Learn from learn from me. I was a moron. I was a failure. People don't want to write that. And so, you know, I guess it doesn't really worry me per se. I mean, my faith, I guess, helps because I feel like, we're, you know, our self-worth is not bound up with what we do. It's who we are and our character. That's sort of my paradigm in life. But it's not everybody's. Many people, their whole self-worth is bound up with being a CEO or, hey, I got 10% earnings, which is okay. But if I got 25%, I'd be happy. I got Then I got 25% earnings per year. I'm still not happy. I mean, it's like... Yeah. What what number is enough? You know, to me, twenty five percent P is a pretty amazing number, but it's never enough. You know, if your self worth is bound up with that, so it's really I got into uh, writing Crucible Leadership and is to help people deal with crucible moments and learn from it, lead lives of significance, and I talk about sort of the whole model of refined design, vision, reality. In, in brief, crucible moments provide a time that, that can refine you. You learn who you are and who you're not. You figure out, okay, how am I wired? What's my inherent design? Let me lead and live out of how I'm wired, not how I'm not. Again, from a faith perspective, we're all designed a certain way. I don't think the creator makes mistakes, so let's figure out how we're wired, get in touch with what we're passionate about, have a vision based on our passions and how we're wired, and to lead lives of significance and have it become reality. That's sort of the whole vision of crucible leadership. Do you believe life happens to us or life happens for us? Do you believe that the world is out to get you, against you, or everything has a reason to happen? That is an interesting question. I mean, maybe both. I do feel like things happen for a reason. Um, it doesn't. It can feel like the world is out to get us. Certainly, you know, the number of negative press stories about me, you know, could make you believe that. But, uh, you know, it's hard to know. Partly depends on how you view, you know, life. Is there some good creator? Is a battle between good and evil? And, and there's a lot of different faith traditions. There probably aren't many that don't have that sense of good and evil having some battle. It's, you know, that's in every movie that you see. Mm-hmm. At least, certainly the... Um, uh, a lot of the superhero movies, but now I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes, um, you know, I remember I'm reminded of something that Joseph, uh, in the Bible, uh, well, at least part towards the end of his story, uh, in Genesis where, uh, you know, a lot of bad things happened. He was put in prison. He was maligned for nothing. He, he did wrong. And it's a, it, there was a line that said, they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So, It's hard to know how all this works, but I think when things happen to you, uh, you can use it for good, even tragedy, Mm -hmm. to help others to learn and grow about yourself. And in that sense, some would say God doesn't cause things to happen, but he perhaps allows it to happen, and maybe there's some good in that. So somehow you have to try to find some uh, meaning and purpose uh, in bad circumstances but so you can't control you know things that come at you uh you know i've certainly had my share of people that have uh, let me down and uh 
that happens when you grow up with power and money. It just sort of attracts that. But uh, yeah, you can get very depressed about it and just say and get angry. It's not fair. Whether it's fair or not, I think it's more okay. This wasn't fair. It may not have felt right. But what do I do with this? How do I overcome it? How do I learn this to help others? How do I accept it? A key again, I'm not a psychologist, but one key to emotional health is is letting go grudges. I don't talk about this a lot in my writings, but maybe I should, is forgiveness. You know, sometimes you need to forgive people who may not be worth forgiving or objectively, but why do you forgive? To make them feel better? No, but by holding on to anger, it stops you moving forward. You know, they typically could care less, you know, but you're the one who's bound up with anger. Well, let it go for your own sake and your family's sake. And if you love your family, you let go of anger. So key part of emotional health is letting go those bad things, forgiving yourself. That's that's a huge part of it because things will things will happen to you that aren't fair. You got to be able to let go. So I don't know if that answered your question. Yes, yes, it's a very it deep did. question. <laughs> yes, it did, Warwick. And there's something that you said that reminded me. I think it was Nelson Mandela. He said that holding a grudge towards your enemy is like taking poison yourself, hoping that your enemy would get sick. I mean, that, I mean, that is so true. I don't know how many decades he was uh, in prison. It was many, but somebody like that to forgive. And one of the amazing things, that, uh, as you probably know, that Nelson Mandela did is he had these, I want to say reconciliation councils in which you had, you know, leaders of apartheid get together with the, folks that they were persecuting and somehow having some sense of reconciliation. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, why would you even try? What's, what's there to reconcile? I mean, it's pretty clear sort of evil and good there, but that was, I think his doing. And that shows a tremendous maturity that uh, few humans have. Yeah. That's a great, great model. Yeah. Incredible. Okay, so jumping back now to all the the positive things that are happening to you in Crucible Leadership. Uh, You have the domain crucibleleadership.com, is that right? That's correct. So uh, whoever's listening, they can go there to find out all about it. And from, from what I checked, your whole story or part of it, not the whole story, but part of it is there, correct? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I am um, active on social media, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Twitter. I bl- uh, blog a number of times a month. They go onto the website. There's a free workbook at the bottom that tells uh, at least ha- some of uh, how you uh, can understand crucible moments and uh, outline what a vision that you're, uh, you're wired for and passionate about, how that can happen. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, things on there, and you can sort of join the dialogue. So, uh, yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun journey. And uh, what is one of your favorite tools to use today, online or offline, um, to grow your crucible leadership? You know, um, I'm a reflective person, so. Yes, there's a lot of tools that can help you figure out how you're wide, um, you know, whether it's StrengthsFind or Myers-Briggs, what have you. But really, I think taking the time you've gone through a crucible experience and just do some journaling, 
you know, what happened? What can I learn from it? Asking maybe two or three close lifelong friends, what do you see in this that can be a force for good? I mean, having having close friends that are willing to speak truth to you in love and give you counsel who you led in, that is probably one of the biggest keys to growth. It certainly helped me. So they can help you with understanding crucible moments. You ask, look, tell me honestly, what are the things I'm really good at? What are the things maybe I should steer clear of? Like, no, really, seriously, I do really want to know. And tentatively, they might stick their toe in the water and offer a few things. But having those friends, I mean, I'm not against assessments. They can be very helpful. But having those friends can help you process, okay, what can I learn from this terrible thing I went through? How am I wide? And what am I even passionate about? Maybe I'm clueless. And they think, well, what do you mean you're clueless? Everybody knows what you love to do and what you're about. It's not a secret. It's, you know, whatever it is. It's like, well, I guess that must be. All of my close friends for decades, they say, this is what I love to do. Well, what would that look like to do to make a business out of it or a nonprofit or whatever? And so that's having those close friends and journaling. Those two things together are probably the biggest things you can do to grow, I would say. Yeah, that, that's an incredible answer. I, I never had that one before, but it's, I, I agree so much with that. And I have a friend and he's also a partner in one of my businesses that I actually, um, he gives me the real advice and there's no hard feelings. And if I suck at something, he is the one that comes and tells me. And if I'm good at something, he tells me. And often the reason why I know this is super important is he did open my eyes to certain things that I should have let go sooner to get somebody else in my team to do, but I was doing it because I thought I was really good at it. And in reality, I was wasting time and resources and I was not very good at that. So we need that honesty and that's that's incredible answer. What a great gift that friend was to you. Because once you allow them in, it creates that dialogue and uh, what you did, Quinn, not that many people are willing to do. There's this sort of false sense of ego and pride, and I want to pretend that I can be Superman, Superwoman, and do everything. It's like, why pretend? That's not helpful to growth, you know? Exactly. You can't do it all. You know, do what you can do. Uh, somebody once said, only do the things that you're great at, not the things you're merely good at. And mm-hmm. that's what I strive to do. There are things I can do reasonably well, like I, I did banking years ago, but I stay off finance committees and the boards I'm on like the plague because I've got training in it, but it doesn't interest me. It bores me. And so, okay, I could be proficient at it. I could make a contribution on those committees, but why do it if it's not my passion? You know, so it's your friend was a good friend to you. Yes, indeed. So Warwick, tell everybody uh, where they can find you if they want to, some help from you and from uh, Crucible Leadership. Yeah, go to Crucible Leadership, uh, sign up for my my blog, uh, which I write several times a month. Um, you can go to Crucible Leadership on Facebook or Warwick Fairfax on LinkedIn, Crucible Leader on Twitter. All of those avenues are a way you can engage and find more about Crucible Leadership and how you can uh, use what you've been through to help others and make uh, live lives of significance. Awesome. And your book, it's not out yet, 
But I, I want you to let me know as soon as it is out because I will, I will announce it here. I'll let everybody know where to find it. Does it have a title yet? It, it will be something around crucible leadership. Um, that would be certainly the uh, the theme and leading a life of significance, which basically this briefly means um, a life that fulfills a higher purpose, that helps others, makes the world a, a better place. The kind of thing you want on your tombstone. Few people will have on their tombstone, hey, I'm rich, powerful, successful. You know, somebody told me just today, even Elvis Presley, it starts off son of this person, you know, uh, father of. It doesn't talk about, you know, uh, how many uh, platinum albums. It's like not anywhere. So what do you want on your tombstone? Maybe you're a good father, good mother, you led a good life, you'd help people. So, you know, uh, another theme. Absolutely. Warwick, uh, thank you so much. Do let me know as soon as the book is out because uh, I'm sure everybody wants to know and I definitely want to know and be able to get my own copy. So thank you for that and thank you for this amazing story. This is probably one of the uh, one of the biggest failures that turned into something positive. So I appreciate you for that. Thanks a lot, Quinn. Very much appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks for subscribing to Fail Fast Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and visit failfastpodcast.com for show notes, Quinn's social media, or even to tell us your story.